Hello, and welcome to a whole new season of the Bear Marriage Podcast, where we like to strip away everything extra and get back to, you know, healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice for marriages and sex lives. My name is Rebecca Lindenback, and I am here doing the introduction for this podcast episode because my mother has the coronavirus. That's right. COVID finally caught up with us. So unfortunately, even though we're starting this new season, I am here, but don't worry. The segments for this week's podcast were recorded ahead of time. So even though my mom is sick this week, you'll have lots of Sheila in this episode. Now, I wanted to let you guys know that this month in August, we're doing a fantastic series of the stories of women the church forgot, okay? These are going to be amazing uh, deep dives into women in church history who have done astounding things. There's a little bit of summer left. You've got time for some more reading. So we're going to be pointing out some amazing biographies of women who are inspiring, who changed the world, who did big things for God, um, stories that you probably haven't heard before. And this week we're starting with Josephine Butler, and I am going to turn it over to my mom and Joanna as they share her story. I have my co-author for The Great Sex Rescue, Joanna Sawatsky, joining me, and we are going to talk about Not the Great Sex Rescue. <laughs> oh, <whoa. laughs> Although, we're going to talk about a woman who tried to rescue sex and women just 150 years ago. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. So Josephine Butler, I had never heard of her until I saw an article in Christianity Today about her, and it was amazing. And it inspired me to buy the book, Josephine Butler, patron saint of prostitutes. <laughs> and I was just blown away just by her story and the intersection of what she did and what we're doing. And I just found so much of it really encouraging. Yeah, it was actually a little bit unnerving at times as I was reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is this Josephine Butler's biography? Or is this Sheila's biography? Or is it possibly my autobiography? I don't know. Yeah, just it amazing. So, so just to summarize, we're going to get into her story, but just to set the stage, this is a woman who was really active in the latter half of the 1800s in England. She realized how unfair many of the laws were towards prostitutes, um, specifically one law that allowed policemen to grab prostitutes off the street and do a, a vaginal exam using a, a very rudimentary speculum <laughs> to see if they had STDs. And you didn't have to actually be a prostitute. It was just if the policeman thought you might be a prostitute, they could grab you off the street and um, do this to you. It was an attempt to stop the spread of STDs, but they were only targeting the women and never the men. Yeah. They also rec didn't recognize that many of these conditions can be asymptomatic. And so it didn't work. And actually they knew at the time that they put this in in England that these same procedures had been used in other countries and that it had actually driven up the rates of STDs. Well, yes, because of course they're spreading it through the speculums. <laughs> you know? If you think that there's no STDs, you're more likely to engage in risky behavior and then therefore there's more spread. It's right. It's a vicious. Yes. And then she got into also campaigning against child sex workers, especially in Europe, where she was looking at some of the state owned brothels in France and in Geneva, uh, where the actual Calvinist church was running brothels, which mm -hmm. was interesting. 
Um, and, and then she ended up campaigning for women's right to vote because she felt that, uh, these things could never happen unless women actually were given the vote. We couldn't actually, um, get anything really done, but also her big heart throughout all of this was she just wanted men to be expected to do right in the same way that women were. Um, and she was fighting against the every man's battle message back in 1870, the idea that men can't control themselves. And then women, we need brothels. So men have an outlet. And yes. she said, no, we need to expect the same of men as we do of women. Mm-hmm. So that is her story. And it's an amazing biography. And I, and now let's just get into the book. So, <laughs> okay. So I love the fact that I, I love how she was raised. She was raised by this family where she was really encouraged to think and to read. And she wasn't treated as less than because she was a woman, but not just that her parents had a real sense of social justice. Her dad was a minister, a pastor. And I want to read you this, this one thing, which actually sounds so much like my childhood, (laughs) but she says her father invited the children to the family's mission and did not spare them the shocking details. And the family's mission at that time was to fight slavery. So Josephine learned at a young age of whippings and brandings and the separation of slave children from their parents. Her father told her of slave sales in which the merchandise was poked, prodded, and assessed like cuts of meat. The strongest impact on Josephine was made, she said, by the dreadful treatment of female slaves who were almost invariably forced to minister to the worst masters. I mean, I... I remember as a kid reading stories of slavery and especially the Holocaust mm-hmm. and yeah, just being so, so devastated. And so like, I will devote my entire life to making sure this never happens again. I was actually reading another book recently and it made the argument that post the Holocaust, really post any great tragedy, that any theology that we have must take into consideration the, mm-hmm. the atrocities that occurred in the Holocaust and again in other any other human tragedy and that if if it would be anathema to speak a theological statement in the presence of those who were being killed then we should not um, speak the theological statement mm-hmm. such a great test anyway uh, but yeah this is it, I think that those studying those things from a young age really is transformative and it one of the things I really appreciated about Josephine is that she empathized with the right side every time yeah and that goes back to her childhood, that she was taught, who do we empathize with? We empathize with the slave, not with the master. The yeah. victim is the slave, not the master. And I think that that really got deep into her um, mm-hmm. in a powerful way. Yeah. And I love, uh, it talks too about how when she was 16 or 17, she had this great crisis of faith because she mm-hmm. just didn't understand this could happen. When I was 16, I had a huge crisis of faith and it was around pretty much the same thing about how could people who say they believe in God treat and for me it was specifically treat women so badly and think that women are less than and I had a real crisis of faith until my aunt shared with me some books which explained how Jesus and the New Testament really did see women and how we've distorted that (laughs) and that was life-changing for me but as I'm like yeah I had a crisis of faith at the same age over basically the same thing (laughs) that's amazing so then she goes on she gets she's in this wonderful marriage she gets she gets she marries this great guy who doesn't see her as less than, who sees her as a total partner and everything they do, they're in a partnership and mm-hmm. he never holds her back. He just encourages her in what God 
called her to do. So at one point, I think her husband, George was a school principal. So he ran a lot of um, education institutions, but his wife was going out doing stuff and he was like all for it. <laughs> and he actually had some, some professional uh, pushback from mm-hmm. other men in his field because of what she was doing. And he was like, me, come at me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I just really appreciate it. Yeah. And then I love this quote too, about, about her faith. And she says the grays, which is her, her father, like her, her family of origin, the grays were relaxed and full of life because they believed in a version of Christianity, which emphasized love other Victorian Christians, such as Calvinists. And I know there are Calvinists listening. I'm not trying to to beat Calvinist, I'm just saying what the book said, were oppressed by feelings of guilt and sin. The Greys were convinced of their forgiveness and redemption by Christ, which gave them confidence, hope, and an immense compassion for others. Among Victorian families, they most resembled the so-called Clapham sect of which William Wilberforce was a member. So they were very much in this, in this Protestant space in England, which was very anti-slavery, <laughs> was very, let's do something for the poor. Um, that's where they were living. They were about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And so much of the book too does talk about their marriage and how, which I really, I really loved because it, it really seemed like Josephine could not have done what she did without George's support at that time. And I think about you, me, and Rebecca, like we all have amazing husbands. Yep. <laughs> who are yep. totally on our side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you facilitate our jobs. You know, when I, we were writing The Great Sex Rescue, I had a two-year-old and I was big and pregnant and running stats from like, I'd wake up in the morning that last like six weeks. I was waking up in the morning and then working until I went to bed. Yeah. Because we had, we had to finish the book and I had so many stats to run. I would stop to help with the baby and to go on walks. And that was about it. And my husband just took care of her to facilitate. And that's the sort of thing that Keith and Connor and Lucasai have all done to help us to do, do the jobs that we have, which has been such a gift. And it was lovely to read about a man in the Victorian era who, again, just allowed his wife to, to follow um, where she felt the Lord was leading her. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Here's just a few thoughts that she had about gender. She said in her letters, it seems strange that I should have been engaged in taking up the cudgel against men when my father, brothers, husband, and sons have all been so good. <laughs> you know, so she wasn't anti-men. She was just anti this Christian view of men that they need a sexual outlet because they're somehow incapable of controlling themselves. And she says, Josephine Butler believed that Christ had liberated the women he met and therefore the Christian faith should liberate all women too. And as I, as I was reading her story, she seemed like almost naive sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I've been naive too. Like she really thought, look, this is just so obvious. <laughs> and then she'd preach it and everybody would disagree with her. And so that would just make her go full strong ahead, even, even harder. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what was sad to me reading it is that she had a lot of insights that we're still arguing about 150 years later. It consistently shocked her and bothered her when it was Christians who were up Mm -hmm. against her. Not when it was like politicians or the world or whatever, but when it was the church. And especially like at first it was over slavery. You know, like she says, uh, she was shocked to discover that many of her friends did not agree that the issue of slavery should have been pushed to the point of civil war. So you know, she very much wanted the slaves free (laughs) and that there was Mm -hmm. no other choice when people are being so badly treated. And that haunted her. 
that other people mm -hmm. raise. So really interesting. Anyway, let's get into where she actually started campaigning. So it all began not with an, a deliberate decision to campaign, but through a bunch of different things that happened to her personally and all tied up in all of this is, is the death of her daughter. Mm -hmm. I was so sad. I almost had to stop reading. I know it was really bad. Ugh. Like it was just an accident. Her yeah, daughter had this terrible. terrible accident and she really loved her daughter. I think what was she six or seven or something? She was five. Five. And she, yeah. Blonde curls. I have a blonde curly haired four year old. Yeah. And so it hit a little close to home. Yeah. Yeah. So she was totally grieving. And then at the same time where she and her husband were working in Liverpool, she started to meet prostitutes that were really, that were there, not because they had wanted to be there, but because they were literally desperate. Mm -hmm. You know, they had no way of feeding themselves or their kids or anything. And she started trying to help them and as a way to deal with her grief, you know, and one woman who later went on to serve with her a prostitute, she said, she said this, Mary was the former prostitute's name, and she brought Mary into their house. Mary recognized that Christian faith and compassion was the motivation for her treatment in their home. She told George that he did not need to tell her about Jesus as she had already met him. Sir, you have brought me to your own beautiful home. You have treated me as if I were your own daughter, as if I had never done anything wrong. This is what I mean. I have seen Jesus. After a few months, Mary was so clean, taken out of all memory of sin, said Josephine, that one feels as if talking to a being of angelic purity. <laughs> And I appreciated that for, for Josephine that much of what she was doing was autobiographical, that she was trying to work out, at least especially at first, mm. her own grief and suffering by identifying with those who were suffering. Yeah, because that really was the motivation is to try, you know, in her grief to find others and, and help them as a way of resolving what she yeah. was going through. And then as she started to understand this completely inhumane law, because policemen were literally taking any woman they wanted off the street and sexually abusing them. Yeah. Oh, and then if they didn't, if they didn't submit to it, then it was to jail for yeah. you. It's mm -hmm. terrible. Oh, mm -hmm. my goodness. That's mm -hmm. a violation of people. And she was making really good arguments that, like this violates Magna Carta. Yeah. Like you don't get to do this in English law. Yeah. And it was passed in a really not okay way. It was just brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And so she started campaigning and she started a huge long political campaign that lasted several decades in order to get these laws overturned. And at one point she said, we cannot always depend on the self-sacrificing efforts of noble men to right our wrongs. <laughs> we women must do it. Um, and when she started writing, people got really upset at her, you know, her early pamphlets, and that just made her more angry. And she said, I have written indignantly. I cannot help it. You can be angry with me or despise all that I have said. It does not matter in the least. I have spoken the truth. I am ashamed of my countrymen. Well, mm -hmm. and that, that story about people finding her work embarrassing or that what she was doing was untoward really hit me hard because I know we've, we've both gotten that kind of pushback personally. And that has been very difficult for people annoyed with us for speaking out about marital rape. Yep. Like, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but she said, you know, it's better to do something than to yeah. take and to take action than to burn with anger and do nothing. Yeah. Well, I think it was especially taboo to talk about these sorts of issues mm -hmm. uh, in the Victorian era. 
there was this one, I, I just, I just marked this because I thought it was sort of, well, funny and sad at the same time. But so she's going around England. She's doing these rallies. She's explaining how horrible this procedure is. She's describing in detail what it is to try to get people to understand the horror of it. And it said, some of the impact Josephine Butler made on male audiences can be attributed to the thrill of witnessing a beautiful, impassioned woman speak about an illicit sexual topic. John Addington Simmons, who encountered her in Oxford, even admitted that his reproductive equipment swelled while listening to her. Oi. <laughs> Oi. Like, guys, guys, that's gross. Yeah, no. exactly. And isn't that like, I feel that sometimes. Because we do get really gross emails often from men who say things like, it's like, oh my gosh. Yep. I don't think male authors understand the things that female campaigners are subjected to. (laughs) So here she is. So she's trying to get the repeal campaign done and she's trying to repeal these laws and she's trying to make alliances with some politicians and often she's really let down because she'll think that she has people support and then she doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she's often sick and under severe stress. She goes through periods where she's just in bed for months because she just can't handle the stress and she feels really alone. Yeah. I and- really appreciated as somebody who's had health problems that she had periods where she wasn't as productive as she wanted to be because she had to heal or where the stress was just too much and her body needed rest. And it was, that was very comforting to me. Mm -hmm. But what bothered her, and this is eventually where she sort of trained, changed tactics because she was involved in these repeal laws for like a decade. Mm -hmm. But she said, whenever parliament had to deal with issues concerning sex and women's rights, its members thought first of the impact on themselves and their sons. Yep. So they didn't think about the impact on women. They were thinking, how is this going to affect themselves and their sons? And we see evidence of that today too, especially in church politics. Oh yeah. When it comes to issues like of, of in the SBC, trying to get people to take sexual abuse allegations seriously, often what happens by the higher ups is, well, how is this going to affect the pastors? Yep. How is this going to affect the men in the church? Yep. We put men's comfort and men's desires over women's safety. Mm-hmm. And that's the essence of patriarchy. Yeah. I love too how much she, this woman prayed. She didn't actually go to church that much, which is kind of interesting because she had books that publishers refused to publish because they were too Christian. Um, and and she, had, she was often accused of being too religious and too, <laughs> you know, too God. There was too much God in everything she said. And yet she often didn't go to church because she was so frustrated by the fact that fellow Christians didn't see these things were problems, but she had this rich prayer life. And so whenever parliament was debating, she would, she would lead these big prayer meetings or she would have these go into these big prayer and fasting sessions where she would pray that God would be pleased to confound the deliberations and make the results like the confusion of tongues at the building of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> and so it proved. So, you know, her, um, her experience of Christianity was one of great disappointment in fellow mm-hmm. Christians, but also great comfort from Jesus. Mm-hmm. But also like just knowing that your mission is, is a hard one and having that not stop you. Well, she knew when she started doing the work, um, 
advocating for prostitutes, she knew that it was going to be very difficult. And there was a, a, she expanded her work later and also knew how difficult it was going to be. She went in with her eyes open mm-hmm. and uh, still did the hard thing. Yeah. So in this book, um, uh, one male politician who was on their side, I forget his name. So he was, he was campaigning in the house of commons on like for repeal. Um, he said this to other politicians in this matter, women have placed their feet upon the rock of ages and nothing will force them from their position. They knew full well what a cross they would have to bear, but they resolved to take up that cross, despising the shame. It was women who followed Christ to his death and remained with him while others forsook him. And there are such women amongst us now. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Like, I don't like this woman was a powerhouse at her time. She was quoted in newspapers more than Florence Nightingale. She knew Florence Nightingale. They were contemporaries. She was Mm -hmm. better known than Florence Nightingale. And she has largely been forgotten to history because she didn't talk about the right kind of women. She didn't campaign for the right kind of women. Yeah. And so she's been forgotten, but at her time, she was really well known. She was very hated. She was very debated. She went all around England giving these fiery speeches. (laughs) And, and what really bothered her and what she really started to campaign against. So after the repeal laws got um, sorted out was let's, let's figure out, let's, let's deal with brothels everywhere else, because she's, she said that the majority of um, both religious laws and secular laws the object of it was to protect men from the physical consequences of their vices. Yep. And I just feel like, isn't that the way we have set up church church so that men are protected when they sexually abuse women? <laughs> like at least oh, that's cracking was- now, but the, but the number of women who wore themselves out trying to change churches you know, it's only this year that the Southern Baptist Church finally listened. <laughs> and will they make the changes that they need to, to to really change the church culture? That's the question. Yeah, it was really sad reading the book. It was, it was a powerful book. I really enjoyed it. It was a healing thing for me to read it, but it was also profoundly sad because there were lots of places where they were talking about thus and such committee of such government or this brand of the church and I thought I can substitute in here the board of the family yeah or I can substitute in and many many uh mega church pastors and it reads the exact same and it's been 150 years and Josephine Butler is um was a powerful campaigner for the rights and dignity of women in an era where women had very 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 few rights um Victorian England was terrible for women mm-hmm. um and yet I mean, how much further do we have to go? Women still bear men's choices. And, and the women who chose to be prostitutes, and Josephine did a very, very good job of pointing this out, they did not choose to be prostitutes because they wanted to you know, sleep with a bunch of guys. They chose to be prostitutes because they had no other choice. They mm-hmm. had to put food on their table. Their, the economic system in which they were uh, stuck meant that they could not get have jobs. They could not make sufficient money to support themselves. And so they were stuck. And the only thing they could do was sell their bodies to have food. And the men were often soldiers, um, not particularly well off, but certainly able to survive. And the women were just trying to 
eke out a living. And, and many of the brothels were incredibly economically exploitative and actually it was a, a slave system. And Josephine correctly saw that, identified it for what it was and then fought against it by me. Yeah, yeah, she absolutely did. So then, so, so after England, she threw her sights internationally. She went to mm -hmm. France. Um, she found brothels there where one place where there were 400 girls ages five to 11 in the brothels and she brought those stories home some of the girls were english and they had been taken there a trick and it's a like again nothing is new under the sun you hear stories about this around the world today and here yes. listen listen to this one about geneva so she says the theocratic regime of geneva was the most moralistic in europe founded in the 16th century by john calvin who believed that he and his fellow protestants were the elect uniquely chosen by god for salvation it was highly organized and deeply puritanical since calvinists believed that a sin such as prostitution or even seduction proved that the sinner was not one of the elect. Such rejection left no room for repentance or rehabilitation. It was, Josephine remarked, a regime of cold, heavy Old Testament repression. At the same time, the fathers of the church were pragmatic about the need for male sexual outlets and set up a highly organized system of brothels. Yep. <laughs> so the church, basically the church <laughs> set up brothels because they believed every man's battle. Mm -hmm. there's nothing new under the sun. I just, I felt like I was reading, you know, stuff like Steve Artebrin says, you know, men just don't naturally have that Christian view of sex. That's a quote mm -hmm. from um, Every Heart Restored written by Steve Artebrin and, and, and Fred Stoker. Or we have another reason for sexual sin among men. We got there naturally simply by being male. You know, it feels like the same thing all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is the same thing. It, it's mm -hmm. as old as the hill. <laughs> and yet Christ promises us that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Mm -hmm. And what's so sad is that the men in power in Geneva in the 1800s and the men in power in evangelicalism today do not believe in the transformative power of the Holy Spirit for men. Yep. yep. They don't actually believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, then you believe that there is no need for a domestic supply of prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you don't need your wife to be your methadone for your sex addiction. <laughs> yes. So she, so while she's campaigning for a change in the laws, she also had some Christians telling her that she should campaign more for like purity laws, actual purity. And she mm -hmm. wasn't into yes, that. I loved this part. I loved that. I love that she saw correctly uh, where the line was that you could not legislate that somebody follows, and she saw the, the dangers of that sort of legislation, how it could be misapplied, how it would lead to further bondage. I thought that was amazing. And I applaud her for seeing that as it was and for accurately uh, accurately identifying it and then, then uh, campaigning against it um, very, very ardently. Yeah, I think so she, she, really she really felt that the purpose of laws was for justice <laughs> and for safety for people. But the purpose of morality, like how we choose how we act, that's an issue of morality and that's not a subject for laws, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really the way it should be, <laughs> you know? So, so she went around campaigning for men to act like Christian men. <laughs> and that's what she was asking men to do is live up to your Christian like calling and do what is right, just as we're calling on women to do. And there should not be a difference. And so she, she goes right into this 
campaign against the idea that men need to sow their wild oats. And she was looking specifically at India. And this is kind of interesting because she, um, at the same time as she's doing this, there's a group of American women doing it. And she actually called on Catherine Bushnell, who we're going to talk about next week with Kristen DeMay on the podcast, who was an American. And she called on Catherine Bushnell to go to India and look at what was happening in the brothels that were being set up by the British military in India. Oh, it was so sad. Mm-hmm. I and will when, say, I will say one of the things that Josephine Butler was not, she, she did, she was really good at being on the right side of history. Like she, she did a plus really good job. There were some things that she did not do a great job on. And one of them was the British empire. She was very pro empire. So I do want to make sure we give that caveat that she yes. did not see colonialism as the ill that it was. Mm-hmm. So, but she, you know, she, she was really upset that in India, um, Brit, she said like, this is just, this is just, if, if the Brits are trying to say that, hey, we have morality on our side, we are the moral Christian ones, how can you go into India and then basically kidnap these Indian girls and women and use them as sex slaves? Yep. You it have- was awful. And so together with Catherine Bushnell and with others, they were also fighting to get the British army to stop doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do want to just add as we're talking about this and of the prevalence of women being sexual slaves, I do think it's very important as we're talking about Josephine Butler's work and our work, the number of women in open-ended responses to our survey questions who have told us that in their marriage, they felt like prostitutes. Yep. If taken to its logical conclusion, evangelical teachings on marriage and sex turn women into sex slaves. Mm-hmm. And I think that the church needs to reckon with that. Yeah. So here's what she said as she's in India. She says, race prejudice is a poison which will have to be cast out if the world is ever to be Christianized and if Great Britain is to maintain the high and responsible place among the nations which has been given to her. So very much against racial prejudice as well. Um, mm-hmm. If we turn now you know, to look at the end of her life and you know, she spent a long time um, campaigning for women's right to vote for better wages, because the only way to get rid of prostitution was to give women other options, um, fairness in divorce laws, all of these things she started campaigning for. And if you look at it, like she had a lot of success in 1927, the brothels were made illegal in Geneva. So they were gotten rid of the state-owned brothels. It, it says uh, women, of course, got the right to vote <laughs> eventually. The introduction of free and compulsory education, better job prospects, increased wages, and improved working conditions in the 20th century were more important in freeing women from lives of vice. And the vision of Josephine Butler, whose first pamphlet called for better working conditions and opportunities for women was vindicated. Mm-hmm. So the terrible laws were repealed. We saw people pay attention to underage brothels in France. You know, Geneva got rid of the brothels. The British military got rid of their brothels and things. She really had a tremendous impact. And I love what she said about profits. Um, She said, yeah, she said in Profits and Prophetesses, which was a pamphlet that she published in 1898, she explained that prophecy does not mean the foretelling of future events, but to show the mind of God on a matter and profits were badly needed at this time of imperialism and the influence of wealth. And they could be women since the apostles, Peter and Paul had believed that women as well as men were destined by God to be prophets. So, I mean, look at Nathan in the scriptures. He tells the truth, even when it's inconvenient. Yeah. 
And that's what Josephine Butler did. And she just, I I'm still amazed when you read all that she accomplished. I mean, she just got up in the faces of all these huge men in power and she called them right out. And she had horrible things written about her, horrible cartoons of her drawn in, in the British papers. And she kept at it because she knew Jesus's heart for women. And I just thought that was so beautiful. Her most famous phrase, and I want everyone, if you forget everything from this podcast, I want you to remember this. Okay. (laughs) This is such a beautiful phrase. God plus one woman equals a majority. And when she was campaigning and she was off and told, you'll never get this done. How can you go into Paris alone and look at the brothels? And she said, God plus one woman equals a majority. So what did you find the most inspirational about her, her story? I found her discernment to be really encouraging. That when applied, an ethic that values others, that sees the vulnerable as people and sees everyone as an image bearer of God. Mm-hmm. If you apply that, you're going to be okay. I found that really comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found it very comforting that, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but just how reviled she was. <laughs> yep. Like she got it way worse than we did, you know, <laughs> than we are. <laughs> Yeah, like you can say the word vagina in polite company now, mm-hmm. and you could not then. <laughs> yeah, she was just so brave. And these brave women have largely been lost to history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found it maddening that I had never been told her story, that I read many, 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 many missionary biographies. I read about Fanny Crosby, um, the great hymn writer. I read you know, biographies of Gladys Alward. I read Elizabeth Elliot. I read about, I mean, all of them, right? Never heard of her. And I think that is a great, and an indictment for the church. Yeah. Cause her theology is so right on, like it's so right on for today. It's like, <laughs> and, and everything she said, the stuff about prayer, like I just, I, I, I tried to take my notes cause I highlighted so many passages as I was reading this and trying to get them small just to share on this podcast was hard, but I, like, I found this almost devotional experience reading it because it really was so full of Jesus mm-hmm. and it was, it was beautiful. Um, so I highly encourage, you know, the summer is not over yet for most of us. If you need some beach reading or you just want to read something other than fiction, but that still reads like, like a story a really exciting mm-hmm. story <laughs> where there's tension and there's like a protagonist and an antagonist and there's good and bad <laughs> fighting evil. <laughs> then pick up the patron saint of prostitutes, Josephine Butler and a Victorian scandal. I will put the link in the podcast notes. It's a great book and let's not, let's not relegate her to history. Let's bring her back. Cause this is a woman who should be remembered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, if you're intrigued with what they had to say, the link to Josephine Butler's biography is in the description notes and is on the blog post that goes with this podcast episode. So 
make sure that you check that out if you want to hear more about this amazing woman. I also want to put a quick shout out for our amazing Be a Biblical Woman merchandise. If you want to get a mug or a notebook or a wall canvas, but what it really means to be a biblical woman, just check out the links in our podcast notes. Check them out in the blog post again that goes along with this episode. And I hope that you find something that you love. Now I'm going to turn this back over to mom again, and she's going to have another guest on to talk about the conversation around women in Christianity in online spaces. All right. Well, I have sort of a different interview today, everybody. Um, I have a woman named Shannon Johnson who's joining us. Hi, Shannon. Hi. <laughs> and Shannon is a longtime reader. And she sent me a super interesting email a while ago about what she was seeing online. And I thought, this is a conversation that is worth having. And so Shannon's not here as like a super expert. She's not here as anyone who's going to solve anything. We just thought that we would talk about what she's been seeing and why this may be happening just so that we can start thinking about how to make our online spaces safer, but also is there something happening that is hurting women um, in the church as a whole? So Shannon, all right. Can you set the stage for why you sent me an email? Sure. So um, I am a member of a lot of online Christian communities uh, that span the spectrum between complementarianism and egalitarianism. And the main just generic Christian groups that I'm in are also the largest Christian groups that I'm in spanning about 31 to 53,000 members apiece. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that the general tone of the largest groups is more complementarian and more hierarchical than any of the other groups that I'm in. And there are a lot of new Christians in there mixing with lifelong Christians. So they're still trying to get a taste of what Christianity means to them. So a lot of the advice that's being given or stances on certain things are very clearly cut out as hierarchical mm -hmm. in between men and women in marriage and in the church. And I was really surprised to see just how hard set they were on these definitions that there was no arguing mm -hmm. about it at all. There was no, we can believe different things and still be a Christian. It's very much the Bible is clear. And you're not, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with scripture. Here is half of a sentence to prove it. Right. And can you give me an example? Like, okay, so people are, people are talking about marriage or something. And then what's something that you typically see? So there are mainly two separate types of help posts that I have seen. One is just that a husband is not stepping up as an equal parent to the kids or as um, a member of the household. And often the tone will be in those posts from the original poster. He's a great dad, but he doesn't wash the dishes, clean, cook, give the kids baths, change diapers, parent them, help with homework. And I've noticed that their definition of a great dad is just that he's playing with the kids for 20 minutes before bed. Right. Um, and he brings home a paycheck. He brings home a paycheck. He brings home the paycheck. Right. He works right. very hard. So he gets, to, it's very, it's very much a um, callback to mm -hmm. um, previous time. Yes. Um, <laughs> Which actually effect. didn't really exist that much either. Like everyone says that, but when you look at it, even in the 1950s, the, the housewife idea was really only upper middle-class 
and upper class women, like most lower class women still worked. And so yeah. it is kind of a classist way of looking at things. But anyway, yes, go ahead. <laughs> point. Yeah. Um, the other type of post that I'm seeing most often is um, cries for help in an abusive situation mm-hmm. where it's clearly abuse, but um, according to 90% of the women in this 53,000 member group, mm-hmm. the only two reasons for divorce is abuse or infidelity. Right. They do give you, give it for two for abuse. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Oh, but only physical abuse. Right. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, if it's emotional and mental, then you should go to a pastor. Right. Um, and the same issue that we're seeing with a certain other church on the West coast is perpetual in other churches. And you can see it just in these, these individual posts that Mm -hmm. they are still kind of in the mentality of feeling like they have to, this is the way that they have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not able to step out and say like, I, I'm not, th- this is a legal issue, not a spiritual issue. Right. But the advice given is usually, oh, well, if he's abusive, then you can leave. Mm-hmm. Or, um, well, what kind of abuse is it? I've seen that very often is, oh, if he's, if he's only, um, damaging you psychologically, then you need to like stay and pray for him. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people who are in there will say, no, God does not want you to be fearing for your life or for your children's lives. Here is what God would probably want you to do in this situation. Mm -hmm. As far as safety, you need to get yourself out. And then they will be called out for being unbiblical. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's, and, and of course there's like, I would love to be able to say, hey, let's talk about Matthew 19 and how it calls back to Exodus 21 and how the, the what, what Jesus is talking about is really specifically to men finding loopholes in, mm-hmm. in an old Old Testament law. And this doesn't have anything to do with equal rights in a, in a society. Right. Um, yeah. It really is speaking to imbalance of power, yeah. which is exactly what we're doing right now. I mean, we're trying to call out the imbalance of power between men and women that Mm. seems to be perpetuated in the church. Yeah. Yeah. And yet what we are seeing online and, and I've seen this too, is that whenever you get large groups that are called Christian, Mm. they do tend to double down on hierarchy. And so many people go there desperate for advice and they're being given really bad advice. Yeah. Yes. They're giving, they're giving dangerous advice. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I have, at least this week, gotten to a conclusion, because it's taking me this long to ruminate on it, is why is it so hard to have these conversations online? Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard to have the conversations about mutuality mm-hmm. online and in a comment section um, where you, you really want to have a good faith conversation with someone who has a different viewpoint than you? And you get to, you know, tear apart scripture and look at context and look at background and look at the mm-hmm. culture and the language and what is it actually saying? And, and you, you, at least for me, I'm desperate to share the good news mm-hmm. of scripture saying it's not, it's not like this. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that's um, something that's joyous, but also grief filled. Because I grew up in this type of setting too, where it's 
and I still see people that are not willing to have that patient, not even willing to have the conversation. Yeah. And there is no good faith there. It's um, no matter what type of effort I, I make to like, to draw them into a conversation, it's usually ended with scripture is clear. You're not yeah. disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. Yeah. And they just quote, they just quote Bible verses without the context right. and, and often incorrect translations of Bible verses too, right. or very suspect translations. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you want to, you know, address that you sound mm -hmm. like a, um, an academic, which is also not a good thing in those groups. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, you're, you're now becoming, uh, historical critical. Mm-hmm. And that's not um, the majority of the approach of scripture for these groups. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think what I want people to understand is that there are so many women who may not be in super conservative spaces in real life. Um, and they may not even like in their own church, they may not even talk about marriage that much, but they get into these online groups and then they start hearing all of this teaching that's, that's all around hierarchy because the majority of the conversation about Christianity online, unless you're specifically looking for mutuality, the majority of the conversation online will be around help meet submission, pray for him. And that's really all it ever is. That's a really good point is, and the, the majority of, I think just discussions around a woman's faith and what it means to be a Christian for a woman mm -hmm. is in relationship to someone else, yeah, children or their husband. Yeah. And it's never about their own spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. it's the, I mean, you had um, one of those uh, posts in, in the two love and honor and vacuum, which was um, Bible studies for women. And that the comment section was, this is the best Bible study, but it's not for women. Yeah. <laughs> it's not specific to women. And I think that, that opened up a great conversation about what, what is that supposed to look like? Yeah. What does a Bible study meant for women? What is that focusing on? Mm -hmm. Because the majority of them are going to be focusing on how you act or are serving God in relationship to your role. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just how you can look more like Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, um, what if, I know that you're an admin of some groups and you're a lurker in others and, or you, or you try to talk in others. Um, what do you see are some of the big problems when you're an admin? The, the biggest problem that I have seen that I think really is new for me, because this is this journey that I've been on is only in its toddlerhood. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am trying to balance fairness with each side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the group that, that I'm in, we have been very clear is interdenominational, meaning we are not going to really have a set of doctrine beyond the divinity of Christ, the reality mm -hmm. of his resurrection, mm -hmm. and that all you need to do to be saved is to accept the gift that's it. Like right. that's where we stop. Yeah. And I, and we've had to be very clear about that. So when topics do come up and someone says that's unbiblical, yeah. we have to, and we know for a fact that 
a certain denomination might actually disagree. Mm-hmm. We have to step in and say like, hey, just so you know, like this is an interdenominational group and there will be disagreements. We only agree on the core tenets of Christianity. Yeah. So in response to that, they decided to leave the group and create a traditional group. Right, right. And, and I do find that um, that is happening a lot. Now, I'm sure the traditional groups are saying that that those who believe in mutuality are also uh, <laughs> locking them out. But I, what I find really difficult online is when you are trying to discuss these issues, th- that's kind of, that, that is the way that they just end the debate. Well, you're unbiblical. Here's a Bible verse. And, and if you try, yeah, like exactly what you're saying, if you try to give context, if you try to give historical context, if you try to give the Greek yeah, they just, they, they assume that you don't really believe the Bible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or that, um, I have, I think that a lot of these, these churches, and this is where I want to kind of get into what I think is the root mm-hmm. is that a lot of these churches are emotional based. There mm-hmm. is, you cannot have spirituality with intellectualism. Mm-hmm. And if you, it's only a feeling it's that it's that cultivated worship right where you feel the spirit move but is it mm-hmm. is it the spirit or is it um atmospheric manipulation right and we can fog you know, machines fog machines are great right, right the spirit moves through fog machines it's those four chords that yes <laughs> with the synth right over the prayer yes that kind mm-hmm. of stuff and so i do think that you can have and should have a spiritual experience also using your mind, not just Mm -hmm. your heart, because there is even looking at the Greek and the Hebrew, there is a connection between, sometimes they use the one word between the two. So Mm -hmm. having those types of experiences intellectually or like cerebrally Mm -hmm. for a lot of these people is um, heresy. Right. Because you are looking at trying, I think they look at it as you're trying to find the stakes. Whereas we're trying to find the meaning mm-hmm. and intent of the scripture and not just the feeling it gives us. Right. Yeah. That, no, that, I think that that is really true. I, I was in a discussion um, online yesterday where somebody was saying that the Bible was all that we needed for counseling because it says in Isaiah 9, 6, that he will be called wonderful counselor. And I said, yeah, but that's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the Bible. Like Isaiah 9, 6 is referring to Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the word of God. Yeah. You know, the ultimate word of God. And, and then she said, then she quoted John one, you know, to me about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And I said, yeah, that's about Jesus again. <laughs> like, like, it's it's Jesus and yeah. the Bible points us to Jesus, but we interpret scripture through Jesus. We don't we don't idolize scripture. So so when you said interpret scripture through Jesus, then what does that look like practically? Yeah, well, I think I mean to me what it means is we need to really understand who Jesus is. And if a verse doesn't line up, like if our interpretation of a verse doesn't line up with who Jesus is, then that's a sign that we may be interpreting something wrong. I absolutely agree. You know, but I think think that's such a good example though, of Jesus is our interpreter for scripture, Mm -hmm. but, but they leave it there. They go, and that's, that's, there you go. All you need is Jesus. And there's no practical application for Mm -hmm. how we need to be using the example and model of Jesus Mm -hmm. as our filter for the rest of scripture. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then you get into the situation where I think you're right. Churches, um, often really stress the emotional rather than the intellectual, but at the same time, these churches are often very hierarchy based. So women don't really have a role or a voice in the church and they don't really have a place that they can turn to for help because women aren't going to go to elders. Like if, if they're having help in their marriage, so maybe they would go to their women's Bible study, but not always. And so I think that's why women tend to flock online far more I than think men. There do. is a little bit of an anonymity. That's mm-hmm. the protection there. Um, so many of them will say, I went to my church again, that you're very familiar with the scenario. I went to my church. I was struggling with, um, my husband is, is, um, an addict of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to my elders and they told me to still submit to him. Um, and it's damaging our marriage. What do I do? And, mm-hmm. and uh, I went to my elders and like, didn't really get anywhere. I went to my pastor and now I'm asking mm-hmm. you and yeah, there is, there's no females on any sort of pastoral leadership. There's, they don't allow women to be pastorally trained. So when a female congregant is needing some sort of help that is private, Mm -hmm. they have very limited options and all their options are male or untrained female. Right. Right. You know, Kate uh, Bowler, I believe it was, wrote an amazing book a couple of years ago called The Preacher's Wife about women and evangelicalism and how, um, there's, there's a few routes for women to get really famous in evangelicalism. And one of them was by being a preacher's wife. So you think about Lauren Chandler or yeah, like some of these women who became famous just because they're married to a guy who's famous. Um, and the other one is building some sort of a platform an influencer platform online. And the thought is that when women, when there is no room for, for women in churches, then they're going to build these whole platforms on women's ministry. And, you know, people, women start these huge blogs and they get millions of followers and they get book deals, but they don't have any education. Yeah. And I know that that has been that, um, that criticism has been thrown at a lot of women. Like we shouldn't listen to them because they don't have MDivs. I'm not talking about an MDiv. I don't actually think you need an MDiv. <laughs> I would like to see some, some education in psychology and sociology yeah. and, you know, yeah. and, and, and actual like, like evidence-based things, but we, we don't have that. And so we have women who have a lot of authority online and who are admins in a lot of really large groups who have the ability to actually really influence women in difficult marriage situations and they're not doing it in a safe way. Yep. Quite a few of these threads have devolved into that type of splintering where she decides to leave her marriage at, against the advice of the majority of everyone in that thread. And then mm-hmm. she realizes she has no place in that group. Mm-hmm. of 53,000 members mm-hmm. because often some admins will delete dissenting opinions. Right. And so the only thing that a reader will see is one side. Yeah. And um, that's also incredibly toxic and dangerous as well, especially for someone who may not feel comfortable speaking up in the group and is just a lurker trying to mm-hmm. dis- discern what to do in their own situation and only reading one point of view, which could potentially put them in danger, has some really heavy consequences. 
Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that we often go towards the more hierarchy things is people like pat answers. We like pat answers. We like security. If the answer is just submit more, then hey, we have an answer. <laughs> you know, if the answer is just pray more, then hey, we have an answer. Yeah. If the answer is really messy, which it usually is, and it usually involves community, yeah. <laughs> like you need some support around you. You need you need to get some licensed counseling. Yes. <laughs> you need some you need people to step in and support you financially while you figure this out. Like the, the online world can't give you that. And so I think sometimes these pat answers tend to dominate. And especially when the arguments around, you know, how we handle abuse, et cetera, they're not, they're, they're very nuanced. They're not pat answers. You can't just point out a Bible verse. You have to go into, okay, well, what did Jesus mean? And if we look at this parable and compare it to this, to this parable, and, you know, we get this sense of who God is because Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the father. And so it's through Jesus that we understand God and you get, and, yeah. and people can't say that in two sentences. <laughs> Right. And that's the thing is, especially in a, in a Facebook setting, mm -hmm. when you have to do a see more on a comment and you just go, oh, okay, I'm not reading that. But that's yeah. the meat. Yeah, that's what because you can't just leave it with a, two sentences. You have mm -hmm. to go into different like you're going to be writing a novel because mm -hmm. that's the that that is giving the character of God justice. Mm -hmm. there's no way to explain Jesus or God with a comment this big. Yeah. And that's kind of where you find Facebook is at a disadvantage of, mm -hmm. of just because of the platform and the nature of how people are interacting with each other. They're not going to want to read two pages worth of stuff, even though those two pages is really the proper way that we should be discussing Jesus and God. Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm a Canadian sociologist uh, in the sense that I have most of my degrees are in sociology and I'm Canadian. And one of my favorite Canadian sociologists was Marshall McLuhan, who had this famous saying in the 1960s that the medium is the message. And what he meant by that is that the medium actually becomes the message. Like the message is transformed and changed based on what medium it is on. So in social media, pat answers and your extremes on one end or the other, like the polarized, the polarized thoughts, those become the norm because that's what gets the interaction. And yes. then we're not able to have healthy conversations. Um, and I do see things really polarizing online. And so I, I, I guess the reason that I wanted to talk about this is I just think that there needs to be a wider conversation about how. Facebook may not be the safest place if you're just in a Christian group. Yes. Like when it's just Christian and there isn't any actual um, requirement that people look at mutuality or anything, it's going to tend to devolve into Doug Wilson stuff. <laughs> you know, and that's a, that is a really good point. I, in the, again, in the last two and a half years, I've gone through a little bit of a spiritual journey. I think that a lot of people have that um, I, I have a community of women around me who are all egalitarian, but not all Christian. Mm -hmm. And that has been one of the most incredible and healthiest interactions I've ever had. I mean, up till this point, 
most of the friendships that I've had have been just Christian and just out of my church. I mean, it, mm-hmm. out of um, my childhood church in California, we also moved to another mega church in Louisville that had 22,000 members when I was there. So mm-hmm. it, really there was no need for a community outside of the bubble. So mm-hmm. everyone was in agreement about everything. Mm-hmm. And that was when I got out of that and realize that there are people who fall on different sides of, of all the spectrums. The biggest influencer for me with for that was my husband's family who were lifelong Christians, missionaries, Lutheran and egalitarian. And I took, it took me about close to a decade to kind of shed my skin of, of my upbringing and now we're having conversations about like, okay, so let's take a step back and figure out how, why it took me so long, how I got here. And now we're going to have these conversations. And every time they come in town, we end up having conversations surrounding um, biblical texts with when it comes to complementarianism, but more so how that is the bigger, the bigger picture of this is um that it's not just about complementarianism versus egalitarian. Mm-hmm. There was another topic in one of these convert in these uh, groups that was about circumcision in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and something very like you know not applicable today. I mean, very very you would think yeah. innocent, yeah. low stakes, and it was a wife who was concerned that her husband was doubting God because he had questions about the health standards for circumcision in the old testament and he said isn't that like really high risk and wouldn't babies die often from infection Mm -hmm. so she said please help me understand like what should i do about him and everyone said well he is doubting god not arguing with you so it was a very like innocent question i think a really good one to have and yet the takeaway from that was that he was backsliding. Right. So, so you're not allowed to question. Right. So, but that was something completely innocuous, like circumcision in the Old Testament. When you take something that is much bigger, like mm-hmm. who am I as a Christian and a woman? No yeah. wonder that, the, especially on social media, the conversation deflates and can't go anywhere is because mm-hmm. there is, this is happening on a much smaller scale too. Right. About every aspect of faith. Yeah. So what we're seeing right now, though, is with when it comes to egalitarianism versus complementarianism, I think a lot of that is just personal identity. But Mm -hmm. if you if someone is willing to address an issue, if someone is coming from a complementarian background and they finally are willing to address the issue or at least like entertain the idea, that means that the entire foundation of the rest of their faith is also going to follow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many women are afraid to Mm -hmm. even have a conversation about it Mm because it's going to affect the rest of their faith. Yeah. And I think this is where you were saying that in your interdenominational group, you said, look, as long as we believe Jesus is Lord, he rose, you are saved through belief, then we're all good. The problem is that what we've been taught is that it's not just about Jesus and believe it, belief in Jesus. It's what we've been taught is that our interpretation of scripture is equal to scripture. So when people say, um, well, I, you know, scripture says that 
that women must submit to men. And, and people say, well, that's, that is an interpretation, but there's another interpretation. They can't even handle that because they've equated their interpretation of scripture with scripture, because that's often the way it's portrayed by their pastor. So, you know, Christians are people who believe all of these things. If you don't believe all of these things, then you're not a Christian. And so it's like a big Jenga game, (laughs) you know, you take one piece out and then everything falls. And we need to get to the place where we don't have faith as a big Jenga game. It's not about removing something so that everything falls. It's about building (laughs) on the foundation of Jesus is Lord. He saves us. He's God. He rose from the dead. We're saved through grace. And now let's build on that foundation instead of this shaky tower that could come down at any moment. I think that's an incredible way to describe um, how we should be addressing a lot of the I want to say like existential issues, but it's really like second tier from faith, but mm-hmm. things that influence our faith and to not be taking it down, but to be excavating it like an archeologist, mm-hmm. being very careful and combing through it with a fine tooth comb, gently with respect and reverence, yeah. mm-hmm. and then rebuilding what we find into mm-hmm. something that res- that is our faith. And looking at it from that perspective, I think is, is it gives such a good visual of why and how we can do this without losing the faith. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so I just wanted to have this conversation so that we could, we could warn people, you know, the online world is not always that safe. You got to watch who you follow. We've just finished doing our mother daughter book. Our, our edits went into the publisher um, a couple of weeks ago and one of the things we found is that a lot of the influencers for teen girls, you know, they've got millions of followers online, Christian influencers, and they, they mean well, they really do. But a lot of the stuff that they share isn't that healthy mm-hmm. <laughs> because they've never really been taught about a lot of this stuff. So they're just parroting back what they've learned from their church. Yeah. And it isn't always healthy. And so I think we need to be really careful with our social media, especially if you're having issues in your marriage. There's another Facebook group I was in. I had to stop following it. It's not bad. It's not that it's super complimentarian. It's just they're, they keep posting questions where they want people's advice because someone writes in for advice. And so they'll post the answer or they'll post the question. And I'm reading this thinking, this is an abusive situation. But the comment is always remember that we're a site that supports marriage and no, no mean posts and everything. It's like, no, this woman, that's not safe. She's got to get out. Um, And the problem with crowdsourcing advice is most people don't know what they're talking about and not everyone's opinion is equal. (laughs) Yeah, that's another good point. Yes. We just need to be careful. And I would just say like, if you're in a lot of Facebook groups and they're making you uncomfortable, maybe it's time to get out and it's okay to get out. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. And um, I've contemplated getting out many times, <laughs> but I have decided to stay and engage when I want to and engage when I feel like I have emotional bandwidth. Yeah. Because even if the person that I'm talking to doesn't receive it, potentially mm-hmm. someone reading it will. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say that too. People often wonder why I respond to um, idiot trolls on Facebook so much. And, and what I like to say is I'm not responding to them. 
I'm I'm, I'm, I'm leaving all my comments so that all the people watching know what the argument is against yep. the troll. I'm not expecting to change the troll's mind. I'm not expecting to change that person's mind, but I want you exactly. all to see what the argument is. And that, okay. that is an important reason to do it. Yep. So thank you, Shannon, for being brave thank and you. sticking it out. <laughs> thank you for having me on and getting a chance to get it all out. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe together, you know, all of us, we can, we can make a lot of these groups that are toxic smaller <laughs> and, make, and, yeah, and, and, and form and some maybe, healthier places. And maybe even change the toxicity and lower the toxicity of the groups. I mean, that yeah. would be, that's the dream is to, to, to have a, a really good balance of, of mm -hmm. individuals and advice. And hopefully at this, at some point, a change. Yep. I hope that's possible. Got to believe it is. All right. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Sheila. Bye. I hope that you enjoyed that segment. Really, let's just be wise in where we get our info from online, especially. So remember, there is a link to the book on Josephine Butler in the podcast notes. And seriously, you do not want to miss this one. It's amazing. And also God plus one woman equals a majority. Join us next week when we have Kristen Dumay on to talk about Catherine Bushnell. She's another woman you definitely don't want to miss. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will see you again next time. Take care.